Hey all, welcome back to the Fire and Water Cooking Podcast. I'm Darren, I'm your host, and today we have a great guest, Chef David Petrancic from Breville Polyscience, and we're going to discuss how polyscience was integral in this developing sous vide. I'll be right back with Chef David Petrancic. Smoking, grilling, getting hot and hotter, sous vide and chilling from Fire and water. Hey all, before we get on to the show, I want to talk to you for a second about Instacart. Instacart's a great service that allows you to do all your grocery shopping online. And they can get you your groceries in as fast as one hour. They connect you with personal shoppers in your area that know your markets. And they can get them from your favorite stores. They find all the great buys smart suggestions for you online save you money they pick the freshest produce and they check your eggs and make sure they're not cracked check them out guys instacart is offering free delivery on your first order of over 35 dollars on the link below check them out and now on to the show Welcome back to the Fire and Water Cooking Podcast. I'm Darren. I'm your host. And today we have a great guest. We have Chef David Petrancic from Breville Polyscience. David, go ahead and introduce yourself. Where are you from? What do you do? Uh, well, uh, I am the, I guess my title says I'm the product and marketing specialist uh, with the company. Um, but I do a lot more outside of that. Uh, I've been with the company for seven years now, a little over seven years. And uh, basically my role focuses on anything related to product from parts, components, um, documentation about them, and then everything to applications, how to use it. I have a background as a chef. I cooked for eight years in kitchens around Chicago. And anything related to product uh, usually in some way, shape, or form goes through me. Uh, and then when it comes to marketing, it was kind of, uh, kind of like a little bit of a snowball effect, how I fell into that side of our business. Yeah. As, as it relates still to product, I know everything pretty much there is to know about sous vide cooking and how to use it. And it kind of made me a prime candidate to sort of do those marketing tasks. So you're from the Chicago area. Is that where you're born and raised or that's just where you landed or? No, I've been here forever. Uh, we, me and my wife almost relocated. Uh, so in 2014, uh, Breville acquired PolyScience. PolyScience was in Niles, Illinois, uh, which is a little place just north of Chicago. And I had the opportunity to relocate, but I just really love winter. <laughs> yeah, I, I grew up in winter and I can, I can take it or leave it. I, I like going out and visiting snow. Um, like a lot of people do, you know, they like to visit Florida and leave, but, uh, I like to visit snow and then be able to leave and come back to the nice warm house. So, <laughs> yeah, I, uh, at one time I saw this, this meme, uh, and it said something, uh, it was, you know, um, uh, that frozen face, I think it's Jack, uh, Jack Nicholson or whatever. It's got the frozen face and it says, why do I live somewhere? My face hurts. And yeah. that's the only time that I really regret it. Yeah. The, the shining Jack. Yeah. When he's in the ice maze, I got it. <laughs> exactly. So let's talk about your culinary training. So you are a, a chef and you've been working for poly science for a while, but let's go back to how you first started in, in cooking. Was it something okay. you liked to do when you were a kid and you followed your mom around? I like to ask this question because I'm always interested in how people got into the, uh, you know, culinary field. Right. So where things went wrong. Okay. Um, <laughs> let's see. I started, I was cooking from a really young age. Um, I was fat and I loved food. And I found out that if I made food, I could eat said food. And that was just the unlock. That was the cheat code. I, I was really big and uh, my friends would always, you know, pick on me and tease me and stuff. And I couldn't keep up with them. They'd ride their bikes, run around this, that, and or play sports. And I, I was not cut for that. I'm still not cut for most normal sports. I like cycling. I run, uh, stuff like that now. But any football, baseball, eh, forget it. I was like, I don't want to go outside. I don't want to play. And then my mom was kind of like, all right, well, if you're going to stay inside, you got to help me. And I got to get dinner on the table. So I would peel potatoes. I would 
um, crack eggs, you know, all that kind of stuff, measure cups of flour, this, that, you know, stuff you have, you do with your kids. I just kind of, I just kind of always liked it. And then I was part of the generation where um, after school, I would watch uh, Essence of Emerald or actually before that, before Essence of Emerald, I think it was, uh, maybe that was the original show was Essence of Emerald. Um, and like Boy Meets Grill of Bobby Flay, or I, I don't know, remember what the shows were called, but you know, I watched them at the beginning of Food Network, and that was a really like formative, you know, time uh, in my life. And I was like, hey, you know, can I do that? And my parents were like, yeah, people like you can make a career out of this, you can do that. So they kind of fostered it. And then it was kind of funny. My my oldest brother, he went to CIA for like a semester. Decided he hated it. He was working in a restaurant, small little neighborhood bistro, and was like, "I make no money. I, you know, I work ridiculous hours, and you know, all of the, you know, not so great stuff about the industry." And my parents were like, "You cannot do this. Absolutely, you cannot do this with your life. Look at look at look what happened to Michael." And I still wanted to, and uh, so I made a I made an agreement with them that I would go to. Uh, what I refer to as normal school, uh, normal college for, uh, to just to get at least an associates in something. And then I'm going to culinary school. And that's what I did. I got a degree in applied science. I thought for a brief period, I might go into astrophysics. I was really good at calculus and lots of other obscure sciences, but it was really boring. Like it came very, very easy to me. I got straight A's in all levels of calculus and going up through differential equations. I was really good at that stuff and it, there was no challenge. I decided to play with fire and knives and I, I went to culinary school. I went to Kendall College in, uh, in Chicago and um, I started working at a restaurant called Butter. I think it's, I was, it's actually your second semester at Kendall. And I really like that because there's other schools, other programs like let's say Le Cordon Bleu. And I don't know if it's still the, that way now. Uh, but when I was shopping around for uh, my puppy mill, um, the way Le Cordon Bleu did it was that they waited until the end and then you did your internship. And um, I was really glad that Kendall did it so early on because the difference is you have this painted picture of wearing a toque and you know the white jacket and you graduate from school and you're a chef and then you get to the end of the program and then you realize, oh my God, the reality of this sucks. Uh, with Kendall, it was okay. You realize really quickly the paint the paint is stripped from the walls really quickly uh, in, in that program because you're you go right into your uh, internship and you decide really quickly if it's for you if it's not for you, um, and, and then you don't kind of spend the money on the rest of the the program. So I thought that Kendall at least that was um, pretty honest about it. And uh, I did enjoy it, and I, I pursued it for quite a while. Yeah, I, I, I never went to culinary school, but I did work in the restaurant industry when I was young. I started, you know, pro- probably when I was 15, I started washing dishes. And then when I got old enough to be able to work in the kitchen for liability reasons, I was I, I went in to start cooking. Um, not any fancy, you know, white tablecloth restaurant or anything, but, you know, family restaurants, uh, you know, TJ Fridays or, you know, Denny's or Ranch House, stuff like that, where, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of it was, you know, pre-prepared stuff, but it was still, you know, you still had to do a lot. And I kind of, sure. I kind of learned, you know, from there, you know, your, your knife skills and all that and your basic stuff, nothing that you would learn in culinary school, but just enough to get by. But I learned right away that, you know, especially in those type of restaurants, the hours are, you know, ridiculous. The pay is not that good. You know, and unless you're going to either own your own restaurant or go to culinary school to become a higher, you know, uh, thought about chef that um, you're, you know, banging your head against the wall. So I did it for about six, seven years. And then, you know, while I went to school part time and, and was able to get into the banking side. But I always loved the cooking part and, and you know, making things, you know, myself and experimenting and cooking. And that's kind of what I've done throughout the rest of my adult life. I mean, I, I, I cook my, my house here. I, I do all the cooking. My wife doesn't like to cook, so I like it that way, but I've always cooked, you know, whether it was barbecue or, uh, you know, just in, in the regular kitchen, you know, I've always loved to cook and experiment and stuff. So, but 
like you, oh, yeah. like you said though, I mean, your brother found out it's not all what you see on TV. <laughs> no, definitely not. And I mean, I, I did like it. There were things about it that I did like, and I, I went in the deep end pretty quickly. The, I had really high ambitions, which for me isn't uncharacteristic of myself. Uh, my wife will be the first to tell you I, I'm zero to 110%, like <laughs> really quickly. Um, if, I, if there's something I like and I realize that I might have a passion for it, I go all in and there, there's no other way around it. Um, when I was thinking about where I wanted to work, in the in the library at school, we had a copy of the French Laundry Cookbook, and I was just like, "Oh my God, I this is this is the most amazing thing ever! I need to go work there. I need I need to do this. How do you get to do this?" So I started looking for like the best restaurants in Chicago. I learned what a Michelin star was, and then I said, "Okay, who in Chicago had Michelin stars?" And at that time, Michelin Guide wasn't in Chicago, uh, but you know, you turn up the at that time the search turns up, you know. Um, Charlie Trotter's uh, Moto, which was around at the time. And and these these restaurants were open. I said, okay, well, I'm going to go stodge at every single one of them, and I'm going to get a job at one of them. So I go knock the doors at all these places, stodge at all these places. And then I find that there's this one guy in Chicago who had some press who, who had previously worked at French Laundry. And I said, okay, I'm going to work for him. No ifs, ands, or buts. I'm, I'm going there. And I did. And uh, as fate should have it, as par for course for me, uh, the day after I started, he was fired. <laughs> so so I said, well, you know what? I It's still amazing technique, amazing food here, whatever. There's a, amazing talent in the kitchen. All of the chefs that were there have gone on to do amazing things, and I'm still friends with them. And uh, through those connections, I went through other uh, Michelin restaurants and stuff. So uh, I went in pretty deep and that was probably, I mean, I got good experience and good fundamentals and good technique from all of that training, but I saw, you know, the most intense side of the business. I mean, I saw at one of the places that I was working, it was silent. A guy took me out back to yell at me because I dropped a cutting board <laughs> because he couldn't yell in the kitchen. So he took me out back. Like, I mean, just the most absurd stuff. I guess probably that over time, all that kind of stuff wore me down. And I just decided, you know, I don't need to do this. I just, I don't need to be a part of this. There's other things I can do. And eventually I just decided, you know, it wasn't for me. There are other things too. Uh, but that was one of the, one of the factors in me getting out of the business dealing with the egos of some of the executive chefs i'm sure well not just that but i did and i don't want to sound terribly dreary about it i did enjoy those years of my life and stuff like that and i do look back on them fondly for better or worse but you know it's very kind of like a mentally abusive industry right so you've got especially in the kitchens like i said like i was in you you're silent you can't talk you're a prisoner in your own thoughts all day long uh, you're racing against the clock. Most of the time your prep doesn't get done and you're trying to bang it out during service, hoping somebody doesn't find out that you're you're secretly just like praying that someone doesn't order the one item which you have like three portions of for the night. You know, uh, it's just, it's really just a nerve, it's a mess, nerve wracking. And, and then, so I, and I just wasn't cut for that. I also wasn't fast. We can talk all about that, but I was never fast. I was very creative. One of the places that I worked, it was strictly my job to be a tornant, help where I needed to, whoever needed help, bail them out of the weeds, and then be creative, work on new dishes, because I was really great at that. So yeah, I was I was never really fast. I could, I could taste food. I could season food. I was good at that. And I kind of worked my way up the ranks, worked through everything. I did pastry. I did uh, you know, garmage, fish station, grill station, everything, uh, expediting. I did everything. And I said, do I know anybody who wants to hand me a million dollars to open a restaurant? Do not pass go. Do not collect your million dollars. Do something else with your life. Yeah. And uh, yeah. I just decided I, I, I didn't have a way to make it happen. Well, and restaurants are, are hard. You know, those, even if you're a famous chef, I mean, you know, I've seen a lot of these, you know, food network chefs open restaurants and that fail within a couple of years. So it's, uh, 
you know, the restaurant business is hard, but like you said, uh, at least you're still in the field. You're, you're still using that culinary experience that you had and, and training, uh, in a, in a different way. You you don't always have to be an executive chef, you know, for a, a super fancy restaurant or your own restaurant. You can, you know, do things um, like you're doing or, or a few others that I know working for a company developing, you know, and training and uh, putting together, you know, content. Yeah. There's, you know, that was one of the things that I was really, and I've got plenty of thoughts on culinary school, but when I left uh, I had this very singular vision that, okay, it's time to go work in a restaurant. And that's it. There, there was one. There was one way this story ended, and that's you get you go work in a restaurant, and that's so not the case. There's a million things you could do. You could be uh, a buyer for uh, Whole Foods. Uh, you could be um, you could be a blogger, uh, a food writer. You could do. Um, you could be in a position where I am, where I'm working for a f- equipment manufacturer. There's you can work in content and creative. There's, there's so many different avenues you could do. Uh, a friend of mine, uh, shameless plug, uh, Chris Spear, he has, um, he has a podcast, uh, or maybe it's not a podcast, a, a, a blog, uh, chefs without restaurants. And, um, I kind of, for a long time kind of felt like down on myself because I have through my job, I have so many connections with so many amazing chefs. So many of my friends are amazing chefs. I, I could name on my fingers and toes. I don't know, a uh, hundred Michelin stars, people that I know. And I'm like, well, where's my Michelin stars? And I was really upset at myself for a while that I, that I didn't do it. I always felt like I, I didn't do it, but you don't have to you, you don't have to, and that's fine. You can be a chef and not work in a restaurant. That is a thing. Right. Well, and I've seen a lot of, you know, guys that, you know, worked in the, uh, you know, five-star restaurants, and then they open up their own food truck and, and become very successful at that. Or, uh, you know, some other type of restaurant, whether, you know, casual, you know, uh, sports bar, stuff like that. We don't, doesn't always have to be, a, you know, a white tablecloth dining Um I know sometimes, you know, some of the executive chefs can look down at that type of place, but, you know, I've seen a lot of guys do that. I mean, creativity is creativity, you know, and, you know, if you can chase your dream and be creative, that's, that's my whole thing. It's, it's not, it's, it's so, so I can express myself and and learn and constantly and teach and help. There's also a point where food just needs to be delicious. I mean, right. David Chang's whole episode, whole um, uh, series, uh, "Ugly Delicious." Like that's a thing. Like food, food doesn't always have to be tweezed and shaped and cut at ninety degree angles. And you know, it there's there's a point where there's just you make delicious food. And I can't tell you how many meals I've had where I went in really excited, very high expectation, and it was just not delicious. I've eaten at some three Michelin star restaurants where I paid a fair amount of my uh, paycheck and it was not good. <laughs> like uh, so many times, uh, you know, it's, you, it's, it's more about ego and technique than the food itself, which is really sad. And not saying it's all bad. Like there are really awesome <laughs> three Michelin star restaurants and so forth that, you know, I've had experiences with. But um, uh, so so often they're they're just not tasty, and I'd rather make delicious food. Exactly, um, I understand yeah. that. I've had I've I've done the same thing. I've gone to a super expensive restaurant and laid down a lot of money, and just went, huh. I'd rather go to you know some place that was half as much, but you know a lot better food. <laughs> So let's talk about your sous vide experience. How did you get involved in using sous vide? Did you use it when you were in the, working in the restaurants, or did it, was it something you just started kind of doing when you went to work for Poly Science? Or no, I always had a, um, an interest in it. Um, it was very avant garde when I was in culinary school, and not a lot of restaurants were using it. Uh, somewhere it wasn't really talked about. They sure as hell didn't teach us it in school. Um, as a matter of fact, I, 
I, there was one teacher and I, I won't, I won't name her name, but she was really great. She busted my ass. Like there, there were days I came home crying from her, a grown man crying from, from her class. Just like she, I mean, she, she broke me down. Uh, but she was great. I learned, I did learn a lot from her and, um, she was a little bit progressive and her husband worked at a restaurant that was on that that list of places hey well, how do i connect the dot between here and french laundry her husband was working at one of those restaurants and um i asked her a question about sous vide and she was she kind of was just like we're not even going to talk about it you don't need to know how to do that like okay yeah whatever uh and then when i went to go work at this restaurant uh my first restaurant butter they were cooking sous vide and I didn't do much of it on my station. I worked with a vacuum sealer and I compressed some things, but I I wasn't cooking at low temperatures. Uh, that wasn't something that I did, but we were doing it there and I kind of had an interest in it. Uh, and then other restaurants that I worked at, we were cooking sous vide more and more as the technology developed. So more or less as PolyScience came out with new stuff and it was more accessible for the places that I were was working at, staging through, so forth. Yeah, and it, it amazes me that I've talked to several uh, chefs that have gone through culinary school, and you know, even recently, um, even AJ Scheller, you know, uh, they didn't teach it a lot. You know, when she was in culinary school, she learned it after the fact when she got, you know, working in the restaurants, you know, themselves, and then of course she hooked up with Crea, and that's where she's at now. But um, it just amazes me that you know until you know, fairly recently, they never really taught it too much in the culinary school, I guess, because it was still being developed and it really wasn't, you know, this old timey, you know, French, you know, method that's been around for years. It just wasn't something that was mainstream that they thought needed to be taught in culinary schools until pretty much just recently. I don't, I don't even know if they're teaching in it now. They do. We work with some culinary schools or we worked closer with them in the past. Again, culinary schools, I could go all day on on that topic, but uh, we are we do work with some, and they are teaching it. It is being talked about. To what degree, I'm not entirely sure. Uh, AJ probably has a better handle on that subject, but they are a little they are a little bit now. Also, at the time when I was in school, there was a lot of regulation and misunderstanding, and that's when that whole fiasco uh, involving uh, uh, Zakarian. I forget his. It was in New York, yeah. I know they pretty much threw it all out of New York, all of New York restaurants. Exactly when that when that erupted, that was when I was in school and such, and um, you couldn't even. I mean, I couldn't even bring. I said, "Well, why don't I, you know, get one or borrow one from work and you know bring it in and we can do something." And, oh no, we can't even have it here. And this is thing. It's like it was just. Crazy, all sorts of craziness. So, how did you get hooked up with uh, Poly Science? How did how did that come about? Total dumb luck. Let's see. I exited my last my last restaurant, and that was kind of that's when I had my now wife, and I said, "Hey, I want to do something else. I, you know, I can always go back to cooking, but I'm just going to take a break for a little bit. I like spending time with this woman." And my brother was taking some, you know, just like weeknight weekend warrior classes at the local Sir Latab, uh, you know, store. And he was learning, you know, knife skills and whatever. And he said, Hey, they're looking for, um, an instructor. Why don't you apply? So I did. And I worked at Sir Latab for like a, a year and a half teaching everything from knife skills, pasta, you know, they have all these classes that you can go there. And, and that's where I learned one. I like teaching people how to cook. Two, I still like cooking. And three, uh, that that wasn't what I wanted to do uh, forever. So I was, I was online and there was a Facebook post. PolyScience is looking for people to join the, the culinary team. That's all it said. And, or no, and it said, please send your resume to you know, HR at whatever, whatever the address was. And I didn't even have a resume because <laughs> I, uh, I cooked. You walk in the back door, you do a stage, you're good, boom, you're hired. That's how it goes. You know, I didn't have a resume. And the same thing actually funny with Sir Latab, I didn't have a resume there either. I actually did a, did a demo. And what's 
even more hilarious or what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, um, uh, I can't think of the word, but uh, I did a sous vide demo to get my job at Sur La Table. I cooked French toast sous vide and I made a, I made a cocktail that was a little bit um, non-traditional and that's how I got my job there. And uh, so I, so I applied to poly science. I sent my, I made a resume that night, sent it in and I didn't hear anything for like six months. And I said, okay, well, they don't, you know, figures, they don't want me. And I forgot about it. One day out of the blue, they said, Hey, are you interested? We have a position available. I said, Oh yeah. So I went there, had an interview and I was sure I completely bombed. Like I was sure 100% that I had totally just like, this was, this was, there was no way. And the I was such a huge fan of poli science. The, the HR manager, she had a poli science travel coffee mug on her desk. And I asked her if I could buy one. Because <laughs> I'm like, there's no way she's going to let that they're ever going to have me back in this building. I'm a huge fan. I want the coffee mug. And she laughed hysterically and was like, I, I think you might have one someday. And uh, so he, they sent me on my way. And uh, I was on my way home from said interview. And they said, hey, when can you come back for another interview? I said, well, I'm, I'm halfway home. Would you like me to turn around? And uh, I ended up going back the next day. And I met with my the guy who's still my boss. And uh, we just kind of hit it off. Talked nothing about food. Uh, just kind of hit it off together. And I've been been there ever since. Yeah, I like to hear those kind of stories because it's uh, something that you can fall into. And uh, people think that, you know, you got to, sometimes you know uh, scratch your way and crawl your way to the top and sometimes it's just dumb luck you just stumble onto something and then you figure out and go hey i really like doing this you know mm-hmm. <laughs> especially like i'm sure when you first started culinary school you know you never thought you'd be working for an equipment manufacturer you thought you were going to be you know like you said you know a chef at, at a restaurant or you know just working in a restaurant so yeah and um but it always amazes me that there are so many different you know, career paths that you can, you can take, you know, in this industry. So, um, Oh yeah. There's like my, like, um, two of my favorite examples, my buddy Scott over at modernist pantry. Uh, he was a chef. He got, um, certified executive chef certification or whatever, uh, from the America from ACF. And then turns out, you know, now he's making content and recipe development for Modern's Pantry, who dabbles in, uh, well, not dabbles, but their competency is uh, um, food additives, xanthan gum, gelin gum, foam magic, uh, less, all, of, all of these things. And, uh, you know, he's doing that, or my buddy uh, Jamie Simpson uh, at, um, the chef's garden in Ohio. This guy is training with the Boku's door team. He has more talent in his pinky than you could, than anybody I know. And he's working on a farm more or less culinary vegetable Institute. He did a project called 32 textures of blueberries. Like I, for the blueberry council and his food is the, I mean, it's in actually he might have been an art culinaire if I'm not mistaken. It's his food is absolutely beautiful, delicious, and the guy's working on a farm. I mean, it's you. There's so many different alternative paths. Yeah. Well, we're going to take a break, quick break for an ad here, and when we come back, we're going to talk about we're going to delve deep into poly science because you know a lot of people out there might not really understand that poly science is one of the first um, innovators of sous vide, along with. Um, uh, Dr. Gousseau. So we'll be right back with David from PolyScience. Hey, all I want to welcome again Inkbird as our sponsor for the Fire and Water Cooking Podcast. Inkbird has more than just barbecue thermometers and instant read thermometers that I've talked about before. Inkbird just came out with a Wi Fi sous vide circulator that I've been using for a few weeks now that works pretty good. It has over 1,000 watts of power has a app that has many times and temps for meats and vegetables also has onboard times and temps for meats and vegetables runs really quiet 
fits most regular sous vide containers that are the size of the Innovas. So check it out. Look below, there's a link. So check out the Inkbird Wi-Fi sous vide circulator in the description below. Back to our program. All right, we're back with David. Uh, let's talk about polyscience because you know I'm sure some people have heard about polyscience. Some people know who they are, uh, but there's probably a lot of people who really don't know because polyscience is more of a commercial type. Pro you know, th their products are more commercial. They're, they're aimed at the restaurants and and uh, chefs. They're not sold on the uh, you know regular retail shelves. Yeah. So. Um... So polyscience started in 1963 by Seton Preston. Uh, it was an analytical and industrial manufacturer. They did everything from Geiger counters to oscilloscopes and all sort of analytical devices is what they manufactured. They also had, uh, they also branched out into Preston Industries where they had actually a magazine called Phototechniques because some of polysciences uh, temperature control devices were being used to, to process and develop uh, film. And so they, they fell into that. Uh, what else? Polyscience served a, um, a wide range of analytical and industrial laboratory, um, what's the word I'm looking for, industries. And then it wasn't until 2005 that a chef from Charlie Trotter's, uh, Matthias Merges, picked up the phone and he said, hey, I want to get one of your emergent circulators. And what was hilariously serendipitous about this is that he contacted every one of our, every single one of our competitors before us. We were the last on his list to call and everybody told him he was nuts. So he calls uh, Jalabo, Ika, Lauda, all of these people, big players uh, in, the, in the laboratory world, Thomas Scientific, and they say, you're mental, dude. Like, you're, we thought like brain tissue in these things. We do, you know, cancer research with these devices, and you want to cook fish. You're out of your, you're out of your mind. They hung up the <laughs> phone on him. And, uh, and this, this is not an exaggeration. And... and um, so the person who picked up the phone, her name is Karen. She's been with PolyScience forever and is still there. And she said, I have no idea what you're talking about, but our president likes to cook. Let me put you through to him. So as, as fate should have it, uh, PolyScience was just north of Chicago. Charlie Trotters was in Chicago. Philip talks to Matthias and says, I got no idea what you're talking about, but I like food. I'm on my way. So he, he heads down there with, uh, with, uh, um, with an immersion circulator and uh, they cook a piece of, I think it was sea bass or sea bream, something like that. And uh, they knew they had something. And then it just kind of exploded out of that spark. You've got Wiley Dufresne, who is in New York at WD50. Uh, he was going on Iron Chef America and it was Battle Tilapia. And he says, Hey, I got this idea. I think it's going to one of, one of your baths is going to work. So what he did was he blended tilapia with um, trans transglutaminase, extruded it through a Japanese noodle press into a polyscience bath and it's set into a noodle and he made tilapia udon. And the judges said that that dish alone, he, he won, he won the, the battle after that, literally the phone started ringing off the hook and we couldn't keep up with the demand. Chefs from everywhere were calling us. It was just this huge spark. And then uh, Philip at that time, he would go through all the orders and all of that, uh, especially during the birth of culinary during this, during this time. And he saw an order come in from the French laundry and he knew, okay, what kind of laundry needs a circulator? So he, so he Google, you know, he Googles it, or I don't even know if you could Google things back then. I don't know, but he looks at, he looks it up. Right. And realizes that, Oh, this is a, a, you know, prestigious restaurant. And so he contacts them and he says, Hey, I'd like to, uh, you know, stop by, deliver it, talk about it, whatever. So he meets Thomas, 
uh, over there. And, um, you know, it was just kind of this perfect storm of this guy heard, this guy heard, this guy heard, and this guy heard. Um, and it's sort of funny. Philip likes to say, he likes to tell this one story about um, he got a call and it was actually during the NRA show, National Restaurant Association show, of course, um, which is our biggest show of the year here in Chicago. And uh, his phone rings. He doesn't recognize the number. And this guy says, you don't know who I am. Um, I'm actually a nobody, but my name is David Chang. And I got your name from my friend Wiley Dufresne. And I need one of your circulators. And uh, they that that relationship developed and so forth. David Chang goes on to be, you know, this amazing chef, so on and so forth. And then those things just kept happening. Like all these relationships just kept building. And that's that's kind of how we became who we are. Yeah. And um, I mean, I've heard some of the stories too. I mean, I, I can't think of anything, you know, recently that that's changed the cooking world, um, you know, as much as, uh, you know, sous vide has. And it's not just about the immersion circulator. I mean, that has a good, you know, a big part of it because that's the way to control the temperature. But to, uh, you know, just the exact, you know, temperature cooking is just, I'm still trying to get my head wrapped around it. And, but I, I know it's something a lot bigger than what the average person can see. You know, you know, the emergent circulators now are on the market, you know, for you know the cheap Chinese ones for like 50 bucks. They're not the best in the world, but it gets more people and, you know, learning about sous vide is one of the things that I like, you know, not everybody can afford the commercial uh, quality uh, poly science. So, uh, you know, people buy the Innovas and the, and the uh, jewels and stuff like that, that are geared more towards the everyday person. But, but, uh, uh, but I, I think sous vide is, is, it's such a big, you know, change to, you know, the whole culinary world. And I don't even think it scratched the surface yet. Yeah. I, if you, uh, so another shameless plug, um, we have this uh, documentary, go to our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash polyscience. And um, check out the sous vide revolution. Um, it tells that story of poly science in much greater detail. And Dave Arnold, uh, now of existing conditions uh, in New York, but at the time he was at uh, French Culinary Institute in New York. Um, this is 15 years ago. He was there and he was working with sous vide and he was one of the early adopters. He's in that story. And he says, I mean, great. Dave Arnold is one of the greatest minds in our industry. And he says it, it's one of the most important developments in cooking history in hundreds of years. We have, we've just scratched the surface. I mean, the stuff that uh, Bruno's team is working on stuff that AJ is working on now that you, so I'm asking you, do you, did you have AJ on as a guest? I, I'm sorry, I, I don't yeah. know. Yeah, she was on uh, about a month and a half ago. She, I think okay. back in November she was on, I think. Okay, so I'm sure she plugged cryoconcentration, did she? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I, oh, I know that, I know they had done some of that too at the uh, sous vide summit. Yes, uh, and like stuff like that. So they are taking, they're taking sous vide a whole level beyond where we, we thought it could go. And so example, as an example, cryoconcentration, um, and I bring this up because you, you know, talked about, you know, we've, we've only scratched the surface of its, the capabilities of low temperature cooking, though we'll, we'll, we'll use our blanket statement of, you know, low temperature cooking has been around forever. People burying stuff in the ground uh, in a pit and letting it cook slowly over time or hanging something over, uh, over a fire and letting it roast slowly for hours. Low temperature cooking has been around for a long time in many forms. Eventually, we start wrapping these foods, uh, banana leaves, uh, larger leaves, so on, sacks and dirt and so forth. It's always kind of been there. But um, now, light years into the future, uh, you've got AJ's team working on cryoconcentration where they're, they're through almost like ice wine. The process is kind of like making ice wine where you have um, – where you have a, a solution, you freeze it, you thaw it, you freeze it, you thaw it, and you remove unnecessary water and other things from it, concentrate the liquid, uh, and then you concentrate other property, properties about 
about it, the salinity, the pH, the bricks, so on and so forth. And then you have these, we just, we have a whole new culinary toolkit. As an example, uh, cryoconcentrated milk. This one blew my mind. Um, I was at, I was at Korea for a, a training on HACCP last year and they did this tasting for me. Cryoconcentrated milk is ridiculous. They take this really high quality milk, freeze it, thaw it, cook it sous vide in all these myriad of ways, so on and so forth. And then you end up with this product that can be whipped like cream, is sweet like cream, has no added sugar, and it's heat stable. That's freaking awesome. Then you've got chickpea liquid. Okay, aquafaba. People have been doing stuff with aquafaba for a while now. It was really on trend for a while. But cryo-concentrated aquafaba has all those amazing properties, like times 10. And they're, it's even more stable. Uh, egg replacement, um, cocktail uh, foaming um, replacement. Uh, what else? Cryo-concentrated mushroom stem juice. That stuff is amazing. It tastes like soy sauce. And literally, it's just cryo-concentrated mushroom juice comes from stem trimmings that would otherwise be waste is now a delicious culinary product that can be used as just, you know, another arrow in the quiver. So what they're doing over there is is years beyond. Or during my lunch there, they serve me, they, they bring this dish to me and it's madeleines. And I love madeleines. For anybody that doesn't know what a madeleine is, it's basically like a little... Uh, We'll refer to it as a cake that fits in your palm. Texture's kind of like a pound cake crossed with a sponge cake. Uh, but they're best eaten hot and fresh. You make the batter. Um, you bake them. They're delicious. They've got a short window of excellence. They serve me, they say, your old Madeleines. And immediately my mind was turned upside down. And I'm like, what do you, what do you mean, your old Madeleines? And they said, we took this batter. We cook it sous vide. To pasteurize the batter, we freeze it, and then we have madeleine batter that's that's stable for a year. And to me, I'm sitting there with my chef hat going, so you can tell me that I've now just removed a single mise en place item from my list for a year. That's like being a culinary wizard, you know? So like, and and they were actually really awesome, the madeleine was still great. It was awesome. It was still delicious. It was still as as you'd expect it to be or want it to be. So the stuff that they are doing with sous vide is is really remarkable. Yeah, and that's one of the things I I even though I'm I'm usually talking to you know the average everyday Joe who's just cooking in their own kitchen, trying to let them understand because you know usually it's somebody that just bought one. You know they saw somebody cook a steak with it. They, they think you can only cook steak and egg bites. You know. <laughs> the the yeah. whole uh, Starbucks egg bites thing that uh, you know uh, creative uh, solutions or culinary solutions put out there was just uh, you know everybody goes to it they come I have a big Facebook group and of course they come in there how do I make egg bites that's all I think about and it's like you guys don't understand you know that sous vide is a whole method of cooking it's not just like an Instapot or a George Foreman grill it's not you know just another cooking appliance it's uh a whole method that can do so many other things, not that you're going to use them, you know, your everyday ordinary cooking and you're cooking for your family, but it can do so much more. Um, and that's, that's what I, I, I try to show people. It's not just for cooking a good steak or a good pork chop, although it can do that really well. There's yeah. I mean, so, there, there's so much more you can do and you can mix it with other cooking methods. Like I try to do with barbecue and grilling and all that. Oh yeah. It's amazing. Uh, with barbecue and grilling another, uh, I'm just going to continue to plug my friends because that's that's the kind of guy I am. Uh, right uh, Meathead, uh, Meathead Goldwyn. I met him at um, at the uh, sous vide summit, and he's he's got an ebook that's coming out um, on the topic of sous vide barbecue, uh, sous vide Q. And yeah. Meathead's um, been on the podcast. I know we've talked about it. He's supposed to give me a copy of that before he gets goes live, but I haven't gotten it yet. I don't think it's I don't think it's live yet. I just I just know that it was that it was on the way. But um, just you know, the, the, you, like you were saying, it complements other cooking methods. You know, barbecue, Jesus, um, sous vide fried chicken, amazing. Forget it. It's, sous vide fried chicken is the best 
fried chicken there is um oh so we were talking about you know other things that you can use it for and you said steak and you know the egg bites this that now i don't mean to jump ahead and we won't we won't jump ahead but just as because i know what's on the docket here uh sous vide summit and talking about that my they asked me what i was going to talk about at sous vide summit and my presentation was called sous vide beyond steak and eggs because that's literally everything that anybody thinks about when they want to cook sous vide <laughs> And exactly. there's a hundred million things beyond that that you can do, but we we won't jump into that because that's that's later. So uh, yeah. yeah, that's okay. We could talk about it. It's not set in stone. So, but yeah, let, well, since you you brought it up, let's go ahead and talk about uh, the Seaweed Summit because yeah. um, uh, it was the first ever one. Uh, I've talked to about half the, the the people that you know spoke there. Everyone I've talked to that went said it was amazing for a first time uh, industry type event and. Um, you know, I, I had Chef Eric Villegas on, AJ, of course, uh, Meathead, uh, uh, everybody that I've talked to just, you know, had a great time and loved it. Yeah, it was it was a great time. It was a super great time. You know, um, we get approached a lot. Polyscience, you know, we we were we were the first. We were the first to sell culinary circulators to chefs. Uh, we we've got a little bit of clout. A lot of people approach us. And we get asked all the time to do events and so on and so forth. And, you know, even if it's, there's, there's times where we've, we've got to turn good opportunities down because we just, we can't do them all. We can't. And Jason, we've, Jason, we've known for a really long time, Jason Logson and, um, and, and Mike, but Jason, I've, I've known since I started at PolyScience, I remember, um, I remember him send sending him when our creative series was like brand new, uh, sending him one for for uh, his blog and stuff like that. And I met him. I like I said, I've been with Poly Science like almost eight years now. Um, I met him back then, so I knew Jason. I've seen him at shows. I've talked to him. I've heard him say, you know, for a couple of years, "Hey, we're thinking about doing this. Would you guys be interested?" I said, look, when when you got something on paper, send it my way. We'll talk about it. And you know, being its first, you know, being such a such a uh, a closed audience, you know, all these people are there because they know sous vide. They've already drank the you know drank the Kool Aid. They're interested in sous vide. They know what it is. It makes a lot of sense for us to be there. And it was the first one. Like, how could we not be there? You know, even just to celebrate sous vide, just just to be there. And, um, so, so we went and we had an amazing time. Crea Cuisine Solutions, they had amazing, uh, presentations, amazing food. They were so generous in providing, um, breakfast and a dinner and all of this for, uh, um, for everyone. Great speakers. The one that you didn't, uh, mention was Scott Heimendinger. That guy knocked it out of the park. Uh, he's, he's a gentleman. He's hilarious. Um, and I, I had a, for those who don't know, Scott Heimendinger, uh, works with Modernist Cuisine now. Uh, he used to be the owner of Sancerra now, sadly, uh, defunct, uh, sous vide manufacturer, but Scott, Scott talked about the, um, the drink, the Kool-Aid process of sous vide. Like, Hey, have you heard about sous vide or the, and the evangelism of it? Hey, I, I don't know what sous vide is. I tried sous vide. My food came out amazing. Oh my God, I'm the best cook there ever is. I'm going to tell all my friends about it. I'm going to buy them one. None of them want to hear about it. One converts and it's just this endless cycle uh, of uh, sous vide fanatics. And he gave a great talk as well. AJ and I did a professional session on uh, advanced uh, sous vide techniques. We also uh, talked about traditional results versus... um, sous vide we cooked some lentils uh we made hollandaise we did all these uh these things uh and then i gave a presentation on uh sous vide beyond steak and eggs where i led with lentils and i can't tell you how many people in the audience turned their eyebrow up at me where people said you know what's your what's your rock star food and my answer was lentils (laughs) lentils <laughs> and i i mean like literally everybody in the crowd is just like okay you have my attention and that came from aj i have a great relationship with aj and a great exchange of ideas and dialogue with her 
uh, and the team there. So I I do a lot of presentations. I do a lot of de- demonstrations. I, I travel a lot and I do all this stuff for the for the for polyscience and my show pony for a long time has been chicken thighs. I love them. I not only do I just love chicken thighs, they're probably my favorite protein. Um, they turn out amazing sous vide and they're kind of they're kind of bulletproof. Uh, and I can finish them in a variety of ways. I can fry them if I've got access to a fryer. I can griddle them. I could do, I can re-therm them. I could throw them on a grill. I can do whatever the heck I want with them. So they're a real good product that I can get a consistent result with or I can adapt to whatever my situation is dictating. Because uh, I, I have been to places where I showed up to do a demonstration and they don't even have a kitchen. Or I can uh, cook in someone's break room, but then I have to present in a boardroom and I can't sear anything. Like it's, I've been in all sorts of situations. So anyway, so for a long time, my show pony was chicken thighs. And I'm like, you know, part of this is me having fun and I am tired of cooking these things. So I said to AJ, I said, AJ, I need, I need an idea. I need a rock star food. Like when you guys go do demonstrations somewhere, what do you do? And she said, lentils. And uh, we talked about it. I tried them and I'm like, oh my God. The texture of sous vide lentils is like eating fine caviar. They Each one is like a perfect little sphere and it pops when you eat it and it's creamy in the middle. Sous vide lentils are amazing. And then, of course, we talked about uh, fruits, vegetables, cocktail infusions, uh, using it for pasteurization and all sorts of other things. But, um, yeah, that was my, my talk there. Well, I'm going to have to try some uh, sous vide lentils because I'm not a big lentil eater in the first place. But now you, you've uh, piqued my interest in that. So okay, so I'll give you I'll give you because uh, now that I've talked about this, I'm sure I'm going to get emails and Instagram messages and stuff like that. So because uh, every, everyone's going to ask this, uh, this happens all the time. So in the regard in regards to the lentils, I would urge you to use beluga lentils or puy lentils. So beluga lentils are black lentils. They kind of look like caviar, which is why they're called beluga lentils. Uh, poi lentils kind of have a little bit of like a zebra striping on them, a little tiger striping on them, and they're green. Those ones are going to hold their shape up the best. Red lentils, brown lentils, yellow lentils, uh, they're going to turn into basically dal, but it's a really nice dal. But try beluga lentils. Use a 1% salt solution, uh, two parts water to one, two parts solution, to one part lentils, so uh, one gram of every uh, one gram of salt for every hundred grams of water, and then hundred grams of water for every fifty grams of lentils. Uh, I cook them at ninety for roughly forty-five minutes, and they have a really, really beautiful texture. Ninety-four Celsius, right? <laughs> yeah, use ninety. No, ninety. Ninety. Ninety Celsius. That's right. A lot of my a lot of my people still go by Fahrenheit, so. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I, so I'll just talk about that briefly. So Fahrenheit is a totally acceptable temperature scale. The reason I started using Celsius, and I think it will help people uh, as they're learning to cook sous vide, which is why I still preach it. Um, things happen at nice round numbers. 55, 50, 64, 73, 83, 85, 90. Things happen at, ni- at nice round numbers. I like round numbers. Also, um, when I was learning to cook sous vide, like, how, how do things happen? Well, or what temperatures do things happen at? And I learned from Heston Blumenthal. 45 is blue, 50 is rare, 55 is mid-rare, 60 is uh, medium, medium well, da-da-da, so on and so forth. And then I started to use those temperatures in relation to other things that I knew. And then it was sort of this unlock where I knew where I was when I was using Celsius in regards to sous vide. And then I always just, I always just did it. And you know what? Every, every cooker. Okay. I wouldn't say every cooker, but most cookers that are out there. Um, it's so easy to just flip back and forth between the temperature units. Anyway. Um, I know everything in Celsius and then you can, if you read something in Celsius, then you just switch it over to Fahrenheit and it usually keeps the temperature. Well, since you brought up uh, Heston mm-hmm. Blumenthal, you guys have a PolyScience has a product that's similar than their Heston Q, uh, the Control Freak. It's like a. Uh, why don't you go ahead and talk about that? Because I've seen the Heston Q. It's kind of a 
uh, in a, uh, uh, what do they call it? Oh, it just fell out of my head. <laughs> induction? Yeah, the induction uh, burner, but it's uh, with precise sure. sous vide type temperatures, correct? So, so this so the Heston Q is a little bit different. So Heston Q, uh, and this is just my this is just my marketing pitch coming out. The Heston Q is a little bit different. Great product, uh, great team. Uh, actually, that's you had me for a second. That's Heston H E S T A N, and that team of guys. Actually, some of them um, used to work for PolyScience like long, long ago, back in the day. Still friends with them. Uh, Philip Tessier, amazing, amazing uh, chef. Um, working with Boku store. I, I, I don't know what restaurants he was at. I think Philip was at French laundry, but, um, Philip is widely accoladed or highly accoladed, um, beyond that. Um, what Heston Q does is it has special cookware that has temperature sensors in the, in the cookware at different points. And then you cook along with an app step-by-step to get an exact result and it'll control the heat uh, based on what it's sensing in the pan. Control, control free, similar, but much different where you would say that that's like uh, one of those espresso machines where you walk up to it and it foams your milk and makes you a cappuccino and all of that. And it's good, but it's not maybe what you're going to get from a barista quality uh, coffee standpoint. The control freak is much more manual. Um, it has very precise temperature. It has a temperature probe that goes through the glass and monitors temperature 60 times per second. And because that temperature probe goes directly through the glass, we can very accurately take, take the temperature of the, the cookware and then apply a PID algorithm to maintain that temperature indefinitely. So I could set a pan to 325, 326, 327, 320, whatever I want, and I can hold that temperature indefinitely. Most induction cookers, they apply a load of heat a wattage um, to get the pan up to a temperature. And what they'll do is they'll overshoot it uh, and then let the pan cool, and then they'll keep pulsing a specific amount of wattage to keep it roughly at the, at the same temperature. And that's what, that's what a microwave without an inverter does. Most microwaves, unless you got a really expensive microwave, that's how they operate as well. Sometimes you'll hear your microwave like kind of kick on and then it'll kick off. The plate is still spinning inside the microwave, but you'll hear like, and then it'll stop and it'll go back and then it'll stop. That's because it's only applying the same amount of wattage for a spe- specific amount of time. Now, if anybody's like me and they actually ever use the power settings, uh, in their, in their, uh, microwave. And the only sort of control that you can do is sort of lower the wattage, but it's still going to put it out in bursts over the course of the cook time that you've defined. What the control freak does, um, that's different from that. That's different from other inductions. It comes up to the temperature that you set and it just holds it indefinitely. Uh, there is no temperature fluctuation at all. So you can get an exact result like you would with sous vide cooking in dry cooking methods. Um, so for so for an example, we do, I cook chicken thighs sous vide, 73, sorry, 74, three hours. I ice bath them. And then I set the cooker to 400 Fahrenheit. So just over 200 C. And I sear them on the skin side for four minutes, flip them to the other side for one minute, and they're done. It's the exact same result every single time. We do omelets, French omelet. Uh, if you go to our Instagram channel, it's one of our most liked posts ever. It has something ridiculous in terms of uh, views and likes and all of that. But we did a French omelet. We do our omelets at 228 degrees Fahrenheit. We stir the curd until it's um, very bavouche. And then we just let it sit for one minute. Roll it. Perfect French omelet. Every single time it's always the exact same so you get an exact result in dry pan cooking techniques it also has a temperature probe that's integrated which is super cool it's the most misunderstood part of the entire product um but it's it's the most powerful part of the device so it has this um an auxiliary probe you plug it in the front and then uh it comes with this handy dandy pot clip slap that on inside your pot probe goes into liquids 
It can do water-based liquids like stock, tomato sauce, uh, ramen broth, whatever it is, um, or oil for deep frying. And then you choose probe control, probe control oil. And what that does is it runs a PID algorithm to maintain the temperature of the food itself. So now it's not running the cooker based on the temperature of the pan. It's running the unit based on the temperature, core temperature of the product that you're cooking, which is, we, we invented that. Or we're in, we have a patent on, on that. We didn't invent that per se, but it's not just, the key difference here is it's not just taking the temperature and saying, okay, you're at 40 now, you're at 45 now. It's saying, okay, you want this broth to hold at 73 for eight hours? It brings it up to 70, brings the liquid up to 73 and holds it indefinitely. The pan may be a different temperature to maintain that temperature within the pan. Uh, so it's driving it based on the temperature of the product itself. Yeah, that sounds uh, sounds amazing. That's for sure. And you, and you guys also came out with the anti-griddle. That was, that's a fun little toy I've seen on the Food Network a few times. Yeah, the anti-griddle is, is really fun. It's a unidirectional flash freeze plate. So we make all sorts of things from canapes to cocktail garnishes. Uh, cold app garnishes. Um, I actually had this idea that I, I, uh, I I'll share something similar that we've done with it in the past. If you ever seen um, an entremet cake, sometimes what they'll do is they'll take a, a twill batter, colored batter, and they'll 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 put down a stencil on a sill pad, freeze it in the oven, and then you put a very flexible sponge cake batter over it once this pattern is set. And now you have this beautiful pattern. Uh, almost like a colored tile or something uh, or that you can wrap around your cake. Well, with the anti-griddle, I don't have to wait for it to freeze. It freezes in 10 seconds, and then I can go ahead and move on to my cake. With If doing this freezing traditionally takes you know 30 minutes, 45 minutes for that batter to freeze. So it's got everything from garnish capabilities. We make customized for cocktails, actually posting... I don't know when this will post, but check our Instagram feed. We're doing uh, actually tomorrow's post is um, custom ice that we do for uh, a Mai Tai. Uh, no, I'm sorry, a Polynesian paralysis. I'm in a tiki at the moment, so so be it. Uh, but we make a, a cocktail ice, all sorts of cool stuff on the anti griddle. Cool. Well, it sounds like PolyScience is uh, they, they they come out with some unique things. That's for sure. And uh, I know sous vide was one of the big things that got them going uh, in the. Uh, culinary side i know they've been you know, they probably still have a good size uh on, on the lab equipment and everything else but i know that the the, the uh, sous vide they've, they've been really uh really aggressive on that and then one of the things one of the companies that really helped uh establish sous vide in the mainstream for sure yeah i mean we've always kind of prided ourselves on really creating innovative tools that help chefs with their daily work but also help them be creative. I mean, um, our other our other products, you know, would include like the rotary evaporator. Um, it's a low temperature still where you can separate flavor from aroma. I can use that to make a watermelon taste like a peach. I can make a banana smell like a pear. Um, we have the Sonic Prep ultrasonic homogenizer. You can take uh, olive oil and vinegar and create an emulsion that's thick like paint and doesn't separate for weeks. Um, with no emulsifiers, it operates purely with sound waves. We have a smoking gun where we uh, use it to smoke everything from guacamole to cocktails uh, to tartare without applying any heat. Um, we've always thought about very innovative products, not just putting another button on a toaster. Exactly, yeah. And that's what I like. I like innovative companies. I like companies that think outside the box and try to solve problems. Um, even on the grilling, you know, side, I mean, I, I, I gravitate towards the companies that are, you know, creating new products and developing their products that they have and making them better and, and solving issues that people have. And sounds that's what, what polyscience is doing. And, uh, I really, uh, really enjoy it. I want to thank you, David, for being on, um, very, very, uh, informative. And I want to invite you on again. I'll probably meet you when I come out to the, uh, 2020 uh sous vide summit out in san francisco this year 
Um, anything sure. else you want to talk about before we uh, close this up? No, that should be it. Uh, make sure to check out uh, sous vide revolution on, uh, on our YouTube channel, uh, youtube.com slash poly science. Uh, check out our website, poly Make sure to follow us on Instagram at poly science. We have, we're posting uh, a couple times a week. We've been doing a lot of cool giveaways with, uh, uh, some awesome companies, Cambro. Uh, we've got one coming up with Korea in, in celebration of uh, sous vide day. Um, all sorts of stuff going on. And uh, on the sous vide side, uh, we did unveil something at this year's um, sous-, sous vide summit. So we've got some stuff in the works that'll come to light pretty soon. So stay tuned. Awesome. Yeah, we'll put all the links in the description of the podcast below, especially. But I want to thank you again for coming. Make sure you uh, check them out. Listeners, check out PolyScience. I'll have all the links below. David, thanks again for coming. And join us again on the next Fire and Water Cooking Podcast. Well, I want to thank David for coming on to PolyScience one more time. Make sure you check out the links below uh, to the PolyScience website and their YouTube channel. Uh, Check them out. It was great to hear about some of the uh, original CV developments. Uh, make sure you follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We have a great Facebook page and Facebook group. There's a lot more interaction. Check out our YouTube channel, Fire and Water Cooking. And follow us on our Fire and Water Cooking website, fireandwater.com. And I'll see you again on the next Fire and Water Cooking podcast. <laughs>